You're tuned in to WKCR's Conversations from the Leading Edge, a program that is led by Columbia University's Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity, also known as AC4. Each month, AC4 hosts interviews with leading pioneers and experts working in the area of peace, conflict resolution, and violence prevention. My name is Meredith Smith, and I'm a research coordinator at AC4. Today, I have the great pleasure to be here with Louis Kreisberg. Louis Kreisberg is a professor emeritus of sociology, Maxwell Professor Emeritus of Social Conflict Studies, the founding director of the Program on Analysis and Resolution of Conflicts at Syracuse University. Mr. Kreisberg writes and speaks on issues relating to American foreign policy, the Middle East, and the fields of conflict resolution, peace studies, and constructive conflict. His research connects conflict resolution with social movements and social justice. Welcome to the show, Professor Kreisberg. Thank you. I would like to start out by asking for some of your personal story. I'm so interested to know more of your background and what life experiences led you into the field of conflict resolution and peace studies. I always begin by saying I was born in Chicago. Uh, my parents came from Tsarist Russia with stories of discrimination and persecution in uh, Russia. I grew up when the wars in Spain and in China with the Japanese invasion raging and Hitler coming to power and threatening all kinds of terrible things. And I was just totally absorbed in concerns about war. Um, as I grew up, I decided I had to do something that would help avoid such terrible disasters. You were here today at Columbia University talking about your book, Realizing Peace, a Constructive Conflict Approach, which was just published this year by the Oxford University Press. Why now? What motivations do you have for putting this book out right now? Well, for many years I've been doing research and writing and speaking about the way in which conflicts could be done uh, with some mutual benefit that could be waged without destructive violence. And uh, I study the U.S.-Soviet relations, I study Arab-Israeli relations, many other um, major conflicts and transformations. At the moment with the book, this particular volume, I was reacting to the feeling that as an American, I have been so distressed that at many times, Americans in the government and outside have been engaged in foreign conflicts in ways which were not very constructive, which were not to America or anybody's good interests. And I also had been studying ways in which sometimes such conduct was good and, and began to think I should try to look at the whole period of my experience at the onset of the Cold War and look at a, a variety of episodes of American in, uh, involvement in foreign conflicts as, as an adversary or as an intervener or as a mediator and tell 
readers, well, how come sometimes it worked well and sometimes it didn't? And at the same time, they trace the development of the field of conflict resolution and peace studies and the way those two fields interact, each learning or failing to learn from the other. I wanted to write this particular book as a way of telling people that there are alternatives. Uh, they sometimes have been used more, they could be used more often. It's such a comprehensive book, and you cover a whole history looking at the Cold War. And just to provide a bit of background on the book, it looks at um, major conflict episodes in which the U.S. has been involved since the onset of the Cold War, as you mentioned, and analyzing American involvement in foreign conflicts that have been relatively effective and beneficial and when they when it has not. And in doing so, you analyze whether the U.S. took constructive approaches to conflicts and whether the approach yielded better consequences than more traditional coercive approaches. Can you tell me more about what is constructive conflict? There's some consensus, uh, I think, about when conflicts have gone better or worse, when large-scale deaths have resulted when oppression has persisted or has increased, we generally understand that as being destructive. When in, instead the some tense and division, contention between major powers, major actors, um, have been transformed from contention to some understanding, some some recognition of common interests. Uh, and they do, doesn't end all conflict between them, but they find ways in which they can conduct themselves and relate to each other, which they feel is not so bad. They could live with that. It's, it's, a, it's a legitimate way of resolving or managing the conflicts that they may continue to engage in. On the, the cover of your book, you have this image of a dove I find this image so striking. Can you talk about this image? Why did you choose this image? Does it relate to the focus of realizing peace? Well, it's a it's a fierce um, dove, mm -hmm. um, and it was designed by my brother Irving Kreisberg, who was, was a painter, an artist, and it was made for the Great March in 1982 in New York City proposing a nuclear freeze. And that was a 35 by 28 foot banner hanging from the hall buildings. And that image very much in my mind, I was at that demonstration in 1982 and it was a sunny Sunday and uh, the police were waving at everybody and everybody was waving. And I think that those kinds of demonstrations do tell a story. They tell, t they tell how people can come up with alternatives and try to win over political and public opinion to enhance more constructive policies. I think that those protests about the way in which the Cold War was being conducted helped transform it so that it was overcome. 
you do provide a whole history looking at America as a foreign intervener and also America as a mediator. And you don't stop there, as you, you talked about with this story. Um, can you also share another success story where the U.S. has operated with an international policy in foreign affairs successfully? Well, I think a lot of the the transformation of the, of the Cold War, some people would say, well, that just came because Reagan uh, scared the Russians and they gave up. Um, that's hardly the story. Um, that uh, certainly the, the the military confrontation did weaken um, the Soviet economy. It weakened our economy, uh, but. What also happened, there were long years under Nixon and Kissinger in which there was detente, there was negotiations between the Soviet Union and the United States that normalized relations so that um, whatever military activities were conducted face-to-face were ones which were shared, uh, knowledge was shared about, there were um, um, some containment of the new developments of nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. There was a great deal of cultural exchange and movement of people from one country to the other. And with that, I think, uh, there was a transformation within the Soviet Union, some feelings that the, the consumer life, the life of freedom was constrained by the system. And those led to the choice of Gorbachev to be a leader of the Soviet Union, and he tried to have a different approach to change the, the life within the Soviet Union, to change the kind of power that the Soviet Union ex- exerted over Eastern Europe. I think that was recognized by Ronald Reagan, and it was that period which enabled the, the, the ending of the Cold War. It sounds like it takes, or it took these leaders being able to see alternative approaches to deal constructively. Is that right? Yeah. I'd like to point to to when Jimmy Carter was president and he foresaw that the problem in the Panama Canal was going to escalate. There had been bloody riots in 1964, and every president after that tried to figure out some way to end the the conflict about the control of the the Suez Canal, and um, Jimmy Carter was determined to make that happen. He paid attention to it. He pointed out how the military leaders in this country said that having a canal in a friendly country is much more secure than having it in a hostile country. He brought senators down to Panama to listen to what the Panamanians are saying. And he convinced enough senators that they passed the treaty. Uh, what I always make, make the point of, that was a great success. We neglect to pay much attention to it, and that's what sometimes happens with successes. We take them for granted. Um, don't realize that they took effort, they took some creative thinking, and some perseverance. Can you share another story or instance when um, we have constructively handled conflict? Well, in terms of acting as a mediator, uh, the U.S. Uh, in the person of uh, Jimmy Carter uh, had the um, skill and the perseverance to 
helped critically in bringing about the peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. Uh, the the team of the of mediators went back and forth between the uh, Israeli and the Egyptian camp, writing a, a framework agreement and getting each side to say what needed to be changed to make that work. Um, the leaders of the bo- of those two sides weren't speaking to each other. It was the team of the mediators going back and forth for almost two weeks to bring that about. The um, there are those times when when the mediator has has a, enough support from outside and, and constructs a circumstance for it. I think uh, in the Oslo peace process. Um, that was not so true, partly because of the disagreements between the parties. But um, the U.S. did not um, exercise the control over the way in which the agreements that were reached were implemented. And we're seeing it very much from the Israeli perspective uh, without appreciating and helping with the uh, Palestinian perspective. And that went on even after um, Arafat had died, and there was a new opportunity certainly were created after that. Um, but they, um, I think those were not seized as well as they could have been. And the U.S. has also acted a great deal, very frequently as an intervener in somebody else's conflict, right? sometimes for humanitarian reasons. Um, some terrible disasters are occurring. Uh, unfortunately, uh, in many of these cases, uh, we're too influenced by our own needs in in that action uh, to demonstrate the importance of NATO or the importance of America, uh, and that gets in the way of doing it more constructively, which uh, actions by a collective body such as the United Nations would be more advantageous. Uh, I think the uh, UN is underutilized by uh, America in, in handling a lot of foreign conflicts. It would be much cheaper to work with them than to ignore them. Why do you think that is? I don't know. The, the public on the whole is, is supportive of the UN. I think there really are just uh, relatively few senators, some um, elements of the neoconservative group who feel that any reliance on the UN or any inter- handling of the UN is, is somehow a, uh, undermines American sovereignty. It's an expression of American sovereignty when we act with it. We financially support uh, the UN, but even there it's often grudging and, 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 and late. Um, there are instances, I think, where some needed reforms have been blocked um, by the uh, U.S. personnel who are really hostile to the U.N. Um, I don't think, uh, I think it's mostly a story of being underutilized. The, the U.N. mediator helped very much in, in the release of American hostages which were taken uh, in Lebanon. Um, and again, it's, it's something which people don't, pay any attention to, but uh, they played a, uh, a very important role in, 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 the, in the release of those hostages. I wonder why this information isn't shared in 
other sources. Do you have any suggestions where to find information on these successful, constructive... Well, they can read my book. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, I think there are accounts. Um, I didn't invent them. I, I found them in open sources. I think the media fall into this old problem of if it bleeds, it leads, thinking that people are really interested in the horrors. As a kid, I was interested in the horrors of war. I collected bubblegum cards about the horrors of World War One. But as an adult, you know, that isn't the story. You, the, there are the, the, the people to be celebrated for fi- figuring out ways in which um, a conflict can be transformed. We, we have the, that domestically with the civil rights struggle. Um, we have it in South Africa with the work of the Amer- African National Congress and under the leadership of Nelson Mandela and the cooperation of uh, Leclerc. Uh, there's an abundance of, of, of small and, and big, uh, big stories. Uh, the newspapers and the, and the television should run some little specials and the little mini-series on those things. I agree. And I wonder how different our understanding and coverage would be on the global war on terror if we were using more constructive strategies. Well, I think it would have made an immense difference. There's no question that uh, waging a GWAT, a global war on terrorism, um, expanded the enemy instead of contracted it. It justified um, overreaching because we were facing this unbelievably immense um, enemy when at the beginning Al-Qaeda was a very small group um, and uh, didn't have uh, great widespread um, uh, support, um, but our way of trying to respond to it was in terms of invading Iraq, which had nothing to do with it, um, certainly stimulated responses which have proven quite disastrous. I wanted to get your critical eye on the, the current American policies. Well, I, I think that Obama came in as president in, in the midst of terrible wars, disastrously waged, and it took a while to somewhat disengage, but it's not an easy matter, and it's not, we're not totally disengaged from the consequences of those wars. But he has shown, through some dialogue and negotiations, that there have been able to make some transformation from in relations with Cuba and relations, I hope, with um, Iran. So I, I think those transformations promise to be quite constructive. Your book discusses American infrastructure for constructive strategies and how can we build the American infrastructure so that constructive strategies can happen and be put into place. Could you give us a little teaser about what's needed? Well, certainly. I think one matter is this: we need to broaden our ways of thinking. Um, there too often we seem to be limited to very conventional thinking that says if there's a problem, uh, we either have to bomb somebody or, or move troops in or do nothing. And in actuality, there obviously there's really a great number of, of alternative actions which we have taken and put, could take. 
which means that also you try to build up institutions which are capable of dealing with foreign affairs in a constructive manner, the State Department, all the non-governmental activities which are um, useful for exchanging information and understanding how the other side looks at things. The Secretary of Defense Gates always used to point out that there were more persons in the military bands for the U.S. Defense Department than there were in the Foreign Service. And I think that there's no question that the capabilities of the Department of State need to be modernized and enhanced. It's partly the, the way some of the political leaders think that the American public wants them to act, and they have to be act tough and insist that we are and forever have been and ever will be on the right side because we are who we are. And it makes this kind of central thing and not outlooking how we might do things even better than we too often have done. It sounds like there's such a, a need for a role for education to take in this. Obviously, there's there a matter of taking courses and learning about uh, some of these events. Um, I think having experience living in other countries, um, reading and listening to people in other countries is very broadening. It's a lot of fun and um, gives you insights that can be acquired no other way. And then that should be shared. Uh, I'd like to call my members of Congress regularly and tell them what I think about this and that, and I think that I would urge other people to feel free to do that. And it doesn't have to be in a totally antagonistic fashion, and particularly, in fact, it should be ones where you sometimes commend some independence, some... Um, courage on the part of the political leaders to, to do something constructive. What guidance do you have for people working towards peace? The issue is to think creatively. It is really disturbing when every enemy is compared to Adolf Hitler and so there's this, this bad guy on the other side there is a regular Hitler or they're evil and that precludes paying attention to what is distinctive about this antagonism. What is, every fight is unique. And you want to think freshly about well, how that other side is not homogeneous. It's got a lot of different people being involved for different reasons. If you want to have them change, you mean to tailor your actions and your thoughts to the particular diverse set of people that you're considering the other side. It reminds me of the seven realities that you outline in your book, Seven Realities of Conflict. You offer so many great pieces of wisdom and knowledge. Thank you so much for sharing and talking with me about your book and your background. Thank you very much. Thank you.